Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 49 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Steve Wynn, singer, songwriter, guitarist for the Dream Syndicate and the Baseball Project, with a prolific solo career thrown in there as well. He's also one of the most thoughtful people in the rock world, someone who was saved from becoming a journalist by discovering punk rock. Yet he retained his questioning spirit and is constantly challenging assumptions and expectations when it comes to being creative and making music. In the early to mid-1980s, the Dream Syndicate was one of the key bands of the Paisley underground rock movement in Los Angeles. These groups, which included the Bangles, the Three O'Clock, and the Rain Parade, brought 60s psychedelic and garage rock influences to their music. The Dream Syndicate may have been the darkest of them, drawing more on the Velvet Underground and Neil Young than the Beatles or Sunshiny California Pop. When you smile, I don't know what to do, cause I can lose everything in a minute or two. It also was the first out of the gate in 1982 with the self-titled EP and then a powerful calling card of an album, The Days of Wine and Roses. Heralded as one of the great debut albums, The Days of Wine and Roses features wind and lead guitarist Carl Percota trading corrosive guitar lines over the pounding rhythm section of bassist Kendra Smith and drummer Dennis Duck. Wynn did the bulk of the songwriting, delivering taut, riff-heavy grinders such as Tell Me When It's Over and That's What You Always Say. The all-out rocker, Then She Remembers, the seven and a half minute title track, which allowed Pakoda and Wynn to stretch out. This pattern, compact, well-crafted songs mixed with extended explorations, would continue throughout Wynn's and the Dream Syndicate's career. The Dream Syndicate also was the first of the Paisley Underground bands to make the leap to a major label, A&M. Those expecting a follow-up that continued along the lines of the Days of Wine and Roses were taken aback by the boomy, doomy sounds of Medicine Show. The Days of Wine and Roses had taken three days to record. For Medicine Show, Sandy Perlman, known for producing Blue Oyster Cult as well as The Clash's Give Him Enough Rope, kept the band in the studio for more than five months. Wynn uses the word miserable when describing the experience, but not the album itself. Two more Dream Syndicate studio albums, Out of the Grey and Ghost Stories, found Wynn moving the needle toward songcraft over band interplay. He fully entered singer-songwriter mode with a solo career that began with his 1990 debut, Kerosene Man. continued through 2008's Crossing Dragon Bridge, which he wrote and recorded in Slovenia. There were also albums by Steve Wynn and the Miracle Three, his Danny and Dusty duo with Dan Stewart of Green on Red, and the indie supergroup Gutterball. Then came the Baseball Project, in which Wynn and fellow frontman Scott McCoy write catchy baseball-themed tunes for a crack band that includes powerhouse drummer Linda Pittman, who is Wynn's wife, and Peter Buck and Mike Mills of R.E.M. Baseball Project's first album, Volume 1, Frozen Ropes and Dying Quails, came out in 2008 
includes Wynn's undeniable anthem, Ted Effing Williams. He talks here about how that one came to him. The Baseball Project recently recorded its fourth album with Mitch Easter at his North Carolina studio. On top of all that, Wynn reformed the Dream Syndicate for 2017's acclaimed How Did I Find Myself Here? and three more albums have followed. For this incarnation of the Dream Syndicate, Wynn has been leaving even more space for improvisations, with Jason Victor as his guitar foil and bassist Mark Walton and drummer Dennis Duck back from the pre-breakup lineup. The latest album, this year's Ultraviolet Battle Hymns and True Confessions, adds kraut rock and ambient influences to the psychedelic mix. Wynn has deep insights into the creative process, a great memory for details, and many stories to tell. Does he write differently for each of his projects? What was the Paisley Underground scene like? How did Wynn's work at a Los Angeles record store help boost the Dream Syndicate? And of course, why did the Bangles write Hero Takes a Fall about him and what was his reaction? Steve Wynn tells all and leaves you wanting more on Caropop. I am not here to rewrite So you write a lot of songs and I'm wondering, are you someone who writes songs because you have a project and do you think about the project that you're writing the songs for, or do you just write songs and then you say, Hey, that sounds like a dream syndicate song. This one sounds like a, you know, solo song or, a, you know, miracle three song or something. I'm always getting ideas and scribbling down lyrics and fragments for this, this and that, but I mostly write on assignments because luckily there's enough to keep me busy. So if there's a baseball project record coming up, I'm writing baseball songs because there's a Dream Syndicate record coming up. I write three chord grooves that go nowhere and everywhere at the same time. I mean, I, I don't. So I, I, I like having something that kind of, you know, excite me, give me, give me um, an assignment. I sort of enjoy that. You know, I'm, I mean, I think we might talk about this before, I think at some point, but I was a journalist. I was a sports writer and I was kind of on the on the fast track to that being my life and career when I was, you know, in my, in my teens. And that was what I really wanted to do until punk rock came along and kicked everything, you know, aside for, for the next 40 years. You were um, saved from journalism by punk rock. I was, I was, as it turns out, I was safe from journal. And, you know, and, and I often, the thing I, I think I've found over the years is you can, you can, you, you can agree or disagree, but I think my, my life wouldn't have been that much different. You know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of hotels, a lot of traveling around and a lot of writing on assignments, a lot of kind of, you know, having to, you know, react to something quickly and find the story there. And I like that in, in songwriting. I like, you know, whether it's, you know, I want, you know, getting excited because I've just heard a new record by somebody and I want to make a record like that or because um, I'm collaborating with somebody and I got to kind of meld into what they do. These are the things that really get me, get me going, which isn't to say, I'm not writing songs for no apparent reason sometimes, but more and more these days, it, 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 the songs come attached to something else. Or even besides, you know, writing with somebody or writing for a project, I get a new toy, a new guitar, a new, a new drum machine, a new bit of software, recording software that I'm trying to figure out. All these things will result in songs. But I, I have to say the thing, you know, the, the, and, and it's, I did write this way when I was younger, but, but the thing about, you know, sitting in a cafe and, channeling the muse and 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 uh, you know writing down my my tortured soul that kind of thing doesn't happen as like it used to when i was 20 years old right well you so, so it sounds like you give yourself prompts 
do these prompts usually start with lyrics or music or what? It goes both ways. Um, you know, mostly for the, I say 90% of the time I start with music, there's, there's music and especially with the dreams syndicate, definitely it starts with music, but at the same time, like I said earlier, you know, especially with the, with the, 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 you know, I used to always have a note, you know, little three, you know, those little, um, notebooks and a pen in my pocket at all times, you know, the, the, to write down a song title or a lyric that came to me. And I would always find bits and pieces like that. Things are different now because you can type it in your phone. You know, there was, there was a, I remember pre, pre-smartphone, I always had a bunch of quarters in my pocket because I would, um, you know, I'd get an idea for a, a, a melody and I would go to a pay phone and call my phone machine with the melody, um, which is, off the top of my head, Ted fucking Williams. Can we say that on the show? <laughs> sure, go ahead. <laughs> okay, um, Ted fucking Williams was written that way. I had that that riff, that melody for the riff in my That's mind. That's so funny. I remember being on the corner of um, Avenue A and Second Street and thinking, this is a cool riff, but I'm not going to remember this riff. This is like a, you know, strangely enough that if I think back to when I wrote that, it wasn't the era of cell smartphones, maybe it just didn't happen. But I, I went to a payphone, called my phone machine, sang the riff. So, I mean, you know, so you, made like up the, so you made up the riff in your head for that. Yeah. Like you had yeah. the idea. It wasn't like you sat at a guitar and made it up. You just had it in your head and you're like, Oh, I got this great riff in my head. And I'm going to call my phone machine. Yep. And that's, that's just kind of, I mean, over the years, those riffs, the melodies, the, 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 the things like that have come in different ways, but it's funny how rarely writing for me, songwriting comes from having a guitar in my hand. Um, I don't, if I write, you know, one song per record on guitar, that's a lot these days. I write mostly, mostly more than anything from walking around, from walking, from getting ideas in my head. I've always found that, you know, maybe it's because when you're walking, you're not distracted by other things. You're not, you know, you're, you're sort of um, freed up from staring at a guitar net or freed up from checking baseball scores at the same time or freed up from, you know, washing the, you know, cleaning the stove or whatever, you know? So walking is just a great way to empty out the mind. And I get ideas all the time. And fortunately I live in New York city, which like Chicago is a good place for walking around. And, uh, and, um, I think it's part of the reason I've written a lot more since I moved here from LA. Yeah, I was gonna say you grew up in LA and, yeah. and you went to UC Davis. How much did that inform the way you started writing in the first place? Well, it did. Um, you know, I mean, I, I've been playing guitar and writing songs since I was nine. And to put that in in the scope of years, that's 1969. So that was, you know, that was a a really great time to be excited about music because the 60s were just so, you know, great. <laughs> 1969, 1970, 1971 were, you know, if you're, if you're, you're a rock geek, those are pretty magical years. And I was hearing everything in the moment real time and getting excited by it, writing really tons of songs when I was, you know, before I was a teenager. Um, so there, being in, being in LA, being around progressive FM radio when it started out, cool top 40 AM radio, and even being in LA, which contrary to, you know, the, the legend, you can walk around LA, and especially if you don't have a driver's license, you, you have to. So I, so I did walk around um, and wrote a lot of songs that way. But when you mentioned Davis, it's not the most inspiring town in the world. It's kind of a, a small college town, agriculture based, um, you know, cow town outside of Sacramento. But it was very inspiring because I went there in 1977 when punk rock exploded. And that just was just, you know, like I said before, you know, when people talk about roots music, you know, and say roots music is 
Graham Parsons and Hank Williams. For me, roots music is the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks because that was the root of everything I do now. That was just when never right. came in my mind. All possibilities suddenly were were on the table, and 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 anything, and anything could be done. And and being in a city like Davis, I I feel kind of lucky that I chose to go there rather than stay in LA because it was a um, Davis wasn't San Francisco. Davis wasn't LA. It was a small small. For people who like things like punk rock and new wave, it was a small scene. There were 50 of us, and the 50 of us were really into it. So we kind of bounced off each other and could do what we wanted to do without any feeling of this is how it's done, this is not how it's done, this is what's popular, this person matters, this person doesn't matter. We were just a bunch of you know, kids working at a radio station and forming new wave bands and, and watching the, the shows that came to town and feeling pretty, um, I don't know, like we could do anything. David Lowry and the Camper Van Beethoven guys, a bunch of them were at Davis also. I don't know if you overlapped with them or not. Is that I, I know Jonathan Siegel was there. Yeah, Victor was there too, although Victor's, Victor's a little younger. Oh, okay. I've talked to Jonathan Dave, a lot about David. I didn't know Victor went there. I should, that's funny. But yeah, so yeah, and, and he talked also about that same scene. Going back though, when what, what were like the first songs that you wrote? I mean, it sounds like you're writing songs when you're like nine. Yeah, it's funny. I just got an email a couple of days ago from a friend of mine who um, I was I was you know hanging out with back then, and he um, he was a lyric writer, you know, and and so I would, we would co-write, you know, age eleven. That's another story I'll say for one second from now. But he re- was reminding me of the first song I ever wrote, which he remembered a song called "Sing My Blues." I wrote it when I was nine years old. I play it now and then in my shows because I just I remember it. It wasn't it wasn't a bad song, but it's like you know. I think the chorus, the chorus is sing my blues, pay my dues, or watch me lose, sing my blues. I'm nine years old. You know, I'm nine years old singing my <laughs> you're blues. In a, you're like, in a God. nine year old. <laughs> I, but you know what? I was, I, you know, like a lot of kids, my blues were real. You know, you can laugh at them. And I had, we're both laughing at it, but, but when you're nine years old, you, oh, can be, you can be lonely. You can be not absolutely. sure. You, know, you can be uncertain about friends. Music was my, my best friend. That was my way of kind of connecting to the world. And so there, Sing My Blues came from a real place, but it's a funny thing. It's probably one of the saddest songs I've written. I was nine years old. Funny thing about this friend I'm talking about, his name is Paul, Paul Engel. And um, he, he um, you know, at, at this time when I was nine, 10, 11 years old, as I was saying earlier, I started writing a lot of songs and actually playing in a band, which I don't know, in my, in my memory, it was a pretty good band. Like we were pretty rocking kind of, you know, I don't know, sounding of the time, Doors, Rolling Stones, who influenced and um i wasn't i was more into writing music than lyrics at the time and this guy comes along paul and says why write lyrics and you know if you want you know you can we can write together so he would show up all the time with these great really heavy lyrics like man you're a genius i'm gonna you know and we wrote maybe i don't know a dozen 15 songs together until one day i happened to be at a bookstore and i picked up a book by rod McEwen, and suddenly there were Paul's lyrics in a Rod McEwen book. And I'm thinking, why is Rod McEwen ripping off my, oh, I get it now. Paul's just stealing <laughs> all his lyrics from Rod McEwen. <laughs> he was very embarrassed. We, we caught him and he was very embarrassed. So my first co-writer with Rod McEwen, as it turns out. Wow. <laughs> now, now, growing up in LA, were you aware of, you know, what was the LA rock scene at the time? I mean, you're listening to radio, so you're hearing, you know, the Stones and, you know, the Beatles and all that stuff. But then you also in LA, you have, you know, the Doors and Love and the Birds and, you know, then all that whole Laurel Canyon scene. Was yeah. that part of what you were experiencing or were you sort of too young to 
you know, because you weren't going to the clubs and seeing those bands. Too young. Yeah, definitely. You know, there wasn't a sense of this band is from here or this band is from there. Maybe I knew if the band was British, but it was all happening through the radio, through record stores, through issues of Cream magazine and Circus magazine, things like that. I was I was actually going to shows quite a bit. I was very lucky that I had an older sister, 10 years older than I am, um, and she would take me to shows. I was her you know, nine-year-old little brother, and she knew I loved music, so she was already driving and living on her own, and she got permission by mom to go to the, um, the Forum, the big arena, or, or the Hollywood Bowl, or the Greek Theater, and see bands like, you know, The Who, and Led Zeppelin, and, and, and um, Alice Cooper, and things like that. So I got to see a lot of shows, but I wasn't going to the Whiskey, but a go-go by any means. You know, that was, that, right. that wasn't a possibility, unfortunately. That would have blown my mind, but because you, you know, of age requirements, you couldn't do that. Um, so yeah, I didn't have a sense of Oh yeah! If I could only see the Buffalo Springfield, that'd be amazing. It was all just music that came out of my transistor radio, and that was that was the extent of it. And after college, you 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 form the Dream Syndicate, and you're in LA, and you become part of this Paisley Underground grouping. Did you think of that as sort of a, a movement at the time, or how did it become that you know these bands, you know you guys and the Bangles and the Rain Parade? Uh, how did that? happen it was a movement it really was it really was a scene and a movement and all the things that you know you know a lot of times when you look back on a certain scene people later on tell you oh you know that's that's made up but it was for that year we were all hanging out together and which is strange you know i'm not sure how it'd be where you i know in new york you could have you know a scene built around cbgb's like punk rock was and everybody lives within 10 blocks of each other everybody lived on the bowery in la the scene you're just talking about, everybody lived 50 miles apart from each other. You know, Michael Quercio at the three o'clock lived in San Pedro, which was almost an hour drive from where I lived in West LA, which was an hour drive from where Dennis Duck lived in Pasadena. I mean, everybody was spread all over the city, but it was a scene. I think that, you know, it happened, I guess, because looking at 19, early 1982, punk rock had come and gone. Um, most of the scenes in most of the cities built around punk rock and kind of fragmented into other things. The, the, the hip music at the time was not what we were doing. It was, it was, it was, you know, very manicured pop or synth pop or new romantic type stuff. It wasn't stuff built around the stuff we love, which was 60s music, garage music, distorted guitars. This was very out of fashion at the time. And um, I think because of that, if you were into playing that kind of music, you kind of found each other. You'd end up at the same shows. I had um, dinner with Vicky Peterson a couple of nights ago here in New York. She and we um, we were we were as people do, waxing nostalgic and talking about scenes. And we were talking about the scene before us, you know, and and talking about how few bands in LA. And when I say how few, I can we came up with two really that were playing what you would call garage music, what you would call '60s style punk pop garage stuff. It just wasn't happening. There was a band called The Unclaimed and one called The Last. The Last made a bunch of records sort of more, more well-known. So we would find each other at shows like that. You know, we'd find each other um, at um, the, the few places people, I guess, could go to hear this music. Also, the connecting point for all of us, among other things, was that I worked at Rhino Records, the record store, which was kind of one of the better record stores in LA at the time. So, you know, the bangles would come in the shop. There were the bangs, as they were at the time, would come in the shop there, and we would talk about music. That was kind of a social scene built in a record store, as they often are. 
but we all found each other because nobody else was doing what we were doing. So we were relieved, you know, we were, we were each other's biggest fans. If I, if I saw, you know, the bangs were playing or the Salvation Army who became three o'clock or the rain parade, I'd be at every show. And God, this was, you didn't, you didn't get this kind of music. It was also, I'm, I'm trying to think, it's not true for everybody else in the scene, but for me, it was kind of good in a way that I went, that I left LA for three years. I was, I was out of LA and Davis from 77 to 80. And that's when the whole punk rock scene came and went. The mask was the, the big club in Hollywood. And there were bands like the screamers and the weirdos and, um, and, and X when they were starting out the alley cats and the plugs. And it was a cool scene, but I had no connection to it. So by the time I came back to LA, 20 years old, I, you know, I didn't know anybody who did anything. I just, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any sense of being in a scene. So we made our own scene because we weren't part of that scene. Oh. The four bands of, of the Paisley underground do not like, you sound like you you're part of a scene, but you don't sound alike. It's not like, you know, you all have the same guitar sound. It's not like you all have mm. the same. It's, it's more like you're, you're, you're inspired by the same era, but you know, the bangles maybe sound a little more like rubber soul and you guys maybe sound a little more like, you know, the velvet underground and Neil Young or something like that. And those are very different sides of, you know, that same era, even though I love the Beatles and I love the velvet underground. So it's, it's interesting that you all have different stuff, you know, and then there's psychedelia in there with three o'clock and you all have sort of different parts of it. And yet it all works together because it's kind of rooted in a certain set of I don't know, values or an era? Yeah, I think values and era and all that. And and really, truthfully, at the beginning, we were all more like each other. I think, you know, the funny thing with all the bands in that scene, especially the Bangs and the Salvation Army, a little less maybe the Rain Parade, although probably them as well, but definitely the Dream Syndicate and the Bangs and Salvation Army is we, once again, we're all really inspired by punk rock. You know, when you hear the early Salvation Army, Right. I mean, they were as punk as a guest. They they sounded a lot like Husker Du, but Husker Du, you know, I'm not. Sure, they might have even come first. I mean, you really, and the Bangs were, uh, you know, you can think of Manic Monday and all that and Eternal Flame, but they were a punk rocking band. They were probably the best musicians, the hardest rocking of all the bands that I've seen at the time. Um, and so we had more in common, and we were all, you know, if there was a center point for all the bands. It would be nuggets, probably. It would be things like the Standells and things like right. that, that, we, that we all were excited by. You know, the kind of the harder garage music. You know, as much as I know the Bangs and Salvation Army love the Beatles, and who does? We you know we did too. We were fine with the Beatles. But at that point, if you know, if you would come, you know, if you would come to one of our homes and want to listen to records, we probably would have put on the Count Five before anything else. That was a you know, and then we each, as as bands do, went different ways. You know, you you know. And we got more into um, noise and feedback and that kind of thing. But that's what, that's what we liked. You know, the one thing that set us apart from all the other bands, we were very, we, we were, we didn't care about being loved. And we would actually go out of our way to not be loved, for better or for worse. I think what made us who we were and kind of continued to through Medicine Show and even in a way to this day is that we enjoyed challenging and confronting the audience uh, and doing the opposite of what people thought we would do. So if people thought we were, you know, the Velvets, we would um, do something totally different. If people wanted short songs, we'd play long songs. If people wanted, you know, anytime somebody started to like us, we'd change. And I think that's, <laughs> I think it was a feeling of just like, 
I don't know. I, th- I think Kendra once said, we're not anybody's monkey or we're not, we're not your monkey. And I think we did, we, we didn't want to be anybody's monkey. I think we just wanted to kind of confront somehow. And I don't know where that came from. And it wasn't always a good thing. Like I say, it's probably, you know, allowed us to be who we were maybe because we felt like we were outsiders in the scene, maybe because, you know, our heroes were bands that were difficult and beside the velvets that would include, you know, well, the fall who at the time we, we, we really loved, you know, bands that just, you know, that, that did things that were wrong in a cool way. And we thought that was a badge of honor. You know, I, I think I can think about with the dream again, how many times we could have taken the easy route and done what was expected of us and it might have served us well but you know here we are 40 years later still doing our thing and that might not have happened otherwise days of wine and roses came out in 82 you know was was certainly embraced uh album on that scene and and you know hailed as this great debut and it, and it seems like that sort of early in the wave of those bands releasing albums like that you guys are maybe out of the gate early because i know the bangles weren't till a little bit later yeah were you, did you guys have like sort of were you the first out of the gates in that group we were kind of the first to do everything i mean kind of like we were we were the first to to do a record the first to do a full album, the first to get into the, be signed to a major label, the first to go on, you know, all the, we were kind of the trailblazers. And when I say first, I mean by a month, but a month was an eternity back then, but we were kind of, we sort of testing the waters as we went along. And um, maybe, you know, when it, cause I think we were, you know, we were always the headliner back then. We were always, we, we were the, the veterans <laughs> again by a month or two on the scene. So right. we were kind of, we were, you know, blazing a trail that, that really, just didn't exist at the time. There was no, there was no rule book. You know, I mean, I talk about this all the time, but it's true. You think about what was going on with us, with the bands in the Paisley Underground and around the country with, with REM and with, and with the, with who's doing the replacements with Sonic Youth and with bands around the country who at the same time were figuring things out. And, you know, there wasn't really an indie rock scene. You know, of course there were independent rock records here and there. It had been, it had been done, but even in punk rock, all the punk rock bands were, you know, on big labels with, with big machinery coming up with the ideas. Um, I just watched that documentary pistol, the sex pistols documentary. Have you seen it? I have not yet. I was resistant. It was, but ended up being pretty, pretty good. And, um, but you, you watch how much their, their one tour of America was, you know, was, um, was, you know, when they were already on, Virgin or Warner Brothers, Virgin in the UK, Warner Brothers over here, they were already into the machine. It wasn't like some indie rock band scrambling around the clubs. They were, you know, they were, they, they had the money behind them. So with things about you know, getting, how do we do this? We were figuring out in real time. Right. And uh, yeah, no, a good friend of mine, um, the late Jimmy Gutterman, he, he wrote a book years ago called 12 Days on the Road, and it was with the Sex Pistols road manager just about that tour. And yeah, there was a ton of machinery going on there and it was just a disastrous. Yeah, there's no sort of there's no like template for how to do that right at that point. Yeah. And especially on like an independent thing. So, you know, to, to do, you know, our first EP, the, 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 our four song EP, we put out in April of uh, 1982. Man, that was, you know, I mean, that record, much like a lot of things when we started out, happened 
kind of was helped by the fact that I worked at, at, at a record store and kind of knew the ropes. Um, you know, I, I, my job at Rhino um, was, I was the um, indie um, independent record buyer. I bought all, you know, the, the indie scene, whatever you call it, the, the underground rocks um, guy at the store. The college rock. The college rock guy working side by side with the jazz guy who was Nels Klein. You know, he, 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 oh, wow. he was my, he was my, 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 my day shift partner for, for a year at, at Rhino. And, you know, and, and it was, it was that kind of store where everybody who was hired there, you know, it was a really cool thing about Rhino is the, the, the main boss would hire somebody who knew about one thing, a lot about one thing. And that was the guy for the stores. There was a reggae guy. There was a folk guy. There was a, you know, blues guy. There was a jazz guy. And I was the indie rock guy. Cause I, you know, so I buy all the, you can, um, the English, the imports and the, and the self-pressed singles. So I kind of knew how that worked and how to get your own record made. I also, you know, not to diminish the early success we had, but I also knew that all the distributors I was, that I was buying records from for the store was spending lots of money with keeping them afloat in a way. When it came time to carry my record, they were happy to take it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, you know, if I, uh, it was a Green World, which was a distributor at the time, and I would call Green World and place a $5,000 order and say, by the way, I've got a band. Would you take 50 copies of my record? They said, sure, why not? <laughs> that's great. That's, like, that's good leverage. Yeah, no. It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. <laughs> got paid, too. <laughs> what was it like when you got your first copies of Days of Wine and Roses and then it started kind of catching on? Like, how did that sort of change you and the band? You know, bringing it back to the store thing, working at the, I, was, I was working at Rhino when the record came out, the day Days of Wine Roses came out, you know, on some Slash, I remember opening the box from, you know, from Warner's, but no, it actually wasn't Warner's at the time, it was just still independent, and, and placing it on the shelf, you know, putting it on, of course, on display very well. And I remember at the time that the three biggest sellers that week at Rhino were Fear, the record, um, Shoot Out the Lights by Richard and Linda Thompson, and the Days of Wine and Roses. And people were really buying, you know, you know, I'm behind the counter saying, okay, that'll be, you know, two ninety nine. thanks. You know, I'm selling my own record and people are buying it like crazy. It was, it was wild because, you know, I think because I had been working at a record store, because I was also such a geeky rock fan forever, because I've been, you know, I was very aware how things worked and I knew that what was happening to us wasn't normal. I knew we were very fortunate. I knew, I knew that, I knew that there was an excitement about the band that doesn't happen every day. I was pretty heady. It was, it was, it was thrilling. It was also kind of strangely, and I know we're not the first band this ever happened to, but it was also kind of threw us off our game. It made us maybe a little more fearful or, or self-conscious or, you know, it, it's funny how you would think the thing that you always dreamed of having that first flush of success where you would just embrace, say, well, I'm the happiest guy on the, on the planet. And it's amazing how often, look at the Sex Pistols, look at Nirvana, look at so many bands. When that happens, they just go catterwall. They go into a free fall of, of, you know, doubt. And maybe it's because you're seeing that kind of success, but you don't fully believe it's warranted. And, mm. and by saying that, we knew, and, I, you know, we knew at the time, I know now, all the years in between, the Days of Wine and Roses was a really good record. When we made that record, we said, wow, yeah, that's what we wanted to do. But at the same time, maybe you feel like, now what? You know, it's what, what, hap what happens now? You know, uh, 
And that, that can maybe make you a little nervous. So that was kind of, if there was a high point in the early dreams, like it was probably the day that record came out. Day of Days One Rose came out, we just felt like, this is it. This is, if we stop now, you know, we take our wings off the table, we'll be a happy, happy band. But then, you know, that's not how things go. Did you feel like when that when that album had success that the, the Paisley Underground scene was happy for you and supportive of you and thinking, there we go, we're moving, we're moving on up? Or or was there also a sense of, you know, jealousy, do you think? And or and those things could coexist too. No jealousy. Everybody was really supportive. It was really at that point in the scene, it was fantastic. You know, everybody was helpful, supportive. You know, I look back now, it's funny. It's like the typical show we'd play back then would be, you know, if we'd be the headliner and the bangs would be third on the bill. And well, they, they can now look back and say, ha ha, we, you know, we showed you, but they did, they, they didn't and don't. We were always like, great. Oh my God. You, you know, now the bangs have record coming out. Wonderful. So no, there was at the time in that brief little, you know, beautiful year, it was great. We all hung out together. We all went to the same parties. We drank together. There was um, interband dating going on. Yeah, everything. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a good time. The songs on The Days of Wine and Roses, were how many of them had sort of been kicking around for a while and how many of them were sort of new at the time for like right before you recorded them? They were all new. I mean, they were, uh, they were all that year. Um, it's funny because in the band I was in before the Dream Singer in Davis called Suspects, which was a band with Kendra Smith, um, and then also two people who went on to True West, Russ Holman and Gavin Blair. We had a band in Davis for two years. Um, we played a fair amount of shows, made a single. I think I wrote about a hundred songs for that band. I was, it was my, you know, I was kind of learning how to be a, you know, the, the songwriter, I guess that, that I would, you know, end up being, becoming. And I wrote so many songs, those songs I've never played since were never recorded. Um, and, you know, we're just, Kind of just, I don't know what I did before I did what I did next. Once the Dream Syndicate formed, everything was, you know, written for the Dream Syndicate. Did you have a sense of how the, you know, the musicians would, I mean, obviously writing for this band, you have Carl Prakota. So he's your lead guitarist. There's a lot of dual guitar interplay going on in there. How much of that are you sort of accounting for when you're writing the songs and how much of it is you have the song and then, you know, then this other thing happens when the band takes over? A little both. Um, it's funny because now in the Dream Syndicate, I really write for the band. And maybe like we were saying at the beginning of, the, of this interview, we're, um, you're writing, writing for different projects. And when I write for the Dream Syndicate now, I try to write as little as possible. I try to, you know, write a chord progression or, or a riff or a groove and then not do too much else. You know, the, I know with this band can do now and what we did back then, which is mostly the weird thing about the Dream Syndicate is it's a we're a groove band for all the talk of guitars and noise and this kind of thing. Everything we've done from the very beginning, when the way Kendra and and Dennis would play together, to now the way Mark Walden and Dennis play together, it's really all about finding something that sounds good played round and round and round for hours at a time. And if, if that works, they just put some stuff on top of it. You know, just it was a good groove, throw some noise here and a little more noise there and a little riff here. And then at the very last window dressing is some words on top of that. And you got a dream snicket song, which is not how I write for the baseball project, for example, where I'm trying right. to tell, tell a whole story about something that happened in three minutes. The dream snicket is just like, if it, it, it should feel good. 
you know, that's it to make it sound like a, you know, a hippie jam band kind of thing, which in some ways we are and always were, it just should feel somehow interesting or, or enveloping. And then once that happens, you can just take it from there. Um, you know, I think, I think the least, you know, I like all the dream singing albums a lot, but the two that I think were the least typical of the band were the, were the third and fourth albums we made in the eighties out of the grain ghost stories. And I think the reason for that, is because by the time we made those records, I was itching to become a songwriter. It's like, all right, I've written, you know, these kind of, you know, groove, you know, underwritten songs were just, the, they go on for hours and hours. Um, but now I want to be a songwriter. And I think that that the dream thing isn't meant for that. The dream thing is really meant to be a band that just is an improv band. A band just takes off and goes where it wants to go. Have to have a lot of room to have not too much structure, but a lot of room to go wherever it's meant to go on a given night. And it's funny how back then and now when we play shows, you know, we'll play the three minute songs and the five minute songs and all that. And they're fun and they're part of the show. But the highlight of any given show for the Dream Syndicate then and now are the songs we play for a half hour. Those are the ones that people walk away, which for some bands would be like, oh, my God, you had me until you started jamming. And I just <laughs> wanted, to, wanted to kill myself with us. It's kind of like I was digging it. And then you played that 20, 30 minute song and I just lost my mind. It's just the thing we, we seem to be able to do best. No, you see, you had, you had the universe inside come out two years ago and you start with a 20 minute song, the regulator. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, so we're obviously we're skipping around chronologically here, but, but I mean, that's pretty bold us to open with the 20 minute song. And it does hold that groove for that 20 minutes, which, you know, you could look back on like, you know, hallelujah from can which is like yeah. 18 minutes and yeah. i mean you know i i love the the long song it's it's a different thing from the three minute song um and uh yeah it's interesting for me to hear sort of how you sort of because the art of writing the long song is different from the art of writing the three minute song well that record is probably my favorite record i've ever made and i think if you, and if i think you the talk, shortest song is like seven and a half minutes or something like that and the reality on that record is and i and i when it came out, I, I would, you know, I, I loved, especially with that record, I loved talking about how it was made because it was such an interesting and exciting experience making that record. But I think that when I would do interviews, I sort, I, I sort of took some of the myth out of it or added more. But the fact that that matters, the universe inside is really just one 80-minute jam. That was recorded one in the morning, 80 minutes straight, nonstop playing. And then from that point after carved up into songs you know it mostly when you hear the record it mostly is chronologically how it went down but we sort of made it into songs somehow it's a weird record mm -hmm. i mean it's it's not you know it, it's there's there were no words there were no there was no nothing was pre-written it was just a jam that i spent the next year trying to make sense of and so when you say i love you know when I talk with the regular, and I wish I could just keep my mouth shut and say, yeah, it's a cool 20 minute song that I wrote. It's just the beginning of the jam. It's just where we started. Right. You, you hear it. You hear um, the record starts with it just chops in. There's, there's no, you know, it, it, the, the, the band's already in progress and we've already been playing for a couple of minutes. It just it's just an artifact. How many takes of that song did you guys do or was that just it? No take. I mean, it was, it's a jam. It's just it really is just real time, a band going off and playing. What had happened was and, you know, again, it's like I. You know, if, if there's ever a record I've made that I enjoy talking about, and, you know, I know you and I enjoy talking about songwriting, so is this a good place to do this? But what, what happened with that record? We were making our second comeback record on these times, the one we made in 2018. Right. 
we were recording that in, in Richmond, Virginia, where we made our, um, the album before as well. A lot of times when a band makes a second record, and that really was in a way a second record because we hadn't, <clears throat> it was a second record for that band, the second comeback record. When you make a second album after a record that people really like, which people did with, whether it was Days of Wine and Roses or the record before that, How Did I Find Myself Here? You feel like you, in some ways you want to repeat what worked, but what worked once doesn't work again. So we were having a hard time making a new record. It was going slowly, kind of, you know, frustratingly. And one of the evenings, midway through the session, we were just hanging out and Stephen McCarthy, the long writers, who is also kind of an auxiliary member of the Dream Syndicate, Stephen lives in Richmond, Virginia, where we made the record. And we just, you know, as one would do, we invited him over to have some beers and hang out. And he came over at the end of our day. And we started thinking, well, there's, we're, we're, we're in the studio. We were living in the studio. So we're at the studio. The machines are still on. Let's go out and jam. So we started jamming with, you know, like I say, it was probably about one in the morning and just played. And we we're so happy to be just not trying to do anything, just playing music that everything just flowed. And I remember the feeling of that, that particular, you know, playing music for 80 minutes straight, especially when in the morning, it's not easy. You know, you can, right. it's really, it's not, it sounds like fun and it can be, but it's, it's not always going to be so inspiring. At first, physically, it's just like you could just drop. But I think we were all having so much fun. Nobody wanted to be the first one to stop. And there were points in that, that stretch of time where you hear the band start to wind down and somebody else picks it up again. Um, the fourth track, Dusting Off the Rush, you kind of hear that happen. The song, the, it feels like it could be ending and then we're off to the races again. We just really played until we had nothing left in the tank. And we did it for the sake of doing it. That when, when you talk about first take, second take, we weren't making a record. We weren't trying to do anything besides just have fun and document the fun. In the following year, I had a recording on my phone of that jam and fell in love with it. Just listened to it over and over. It was my favorite record. This was this unruly, long stretch of music. And I kept thinking, well, I can hear a melody there and I can hear where a chorus might happen here. And I sort of listened to the jam almost like a, an archivist, a, a forensic scientist looking at the crime scene. You're like, what is going on here? And started writing lyrics and choruses where I felt the band might have been feeling they should have been in the first place. It was a fun way of writing. It was a really different way. And then building tracks around my perception of how the, the jams were structured. So I put some kind of logic and reason to this sprawling thing. And once the logic and reason was there, that became the song and built from there. It was, fun way. It was, a, it was, a, it was a cool way of writing. It's kind of the way Remain in Light, the Talking Heads album was yes. written from, from yep. what I understand. You know, they just had these long jams and then they turned them into songs. Exactly. And, and, I, and, I, and I was kind of aware of that. And I was saying, well, they could work like that. I mean, that's, and that's a great album. I mean, Remain in Light, I think the entire album is, uh, every song is are one chord songs. I don't think there are any chord changes on Remain in Light. Could be yeah, wrong, it's amazing but. when you go back to something like Once in a Lifetime and you realize it is just that one groove and they, and, they, and they structured this entire song out of it with verses and a chorus and harmonies and like it, but it's just that do, do, do. Do, 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 like the entire song, you know, that's and it. same thing with cross-eyed and painless. And like all those songs are like that. And you're like, wow, that's, they don't have chord changes. Unlike every other talking head song. And yet people at talking heads album. And yet people look at that album, like, wow, that's the one. Right. So, and, the, and, and you feel that and you hear that and still they're incredible choruses, you know, yeah. Once in a lifetime with an amazing chorus, but it's not a chorus. It was never written to be a chorus. It's just, you know, where they, 
where I guess where they would hit mute and when and unmute and put things in and build on that. It's it is those two records are very similar. I think I think Universe Inside and um and and and, and Remain in Light probably were made the same way. Just play and play and play and we'll figure it out later. So when you play songs from the universe inside uh, live, then how much do they change from what you recorded originally? Because it's hard to recapture a jam session. We haven't done it. We haven't. Yeah, I was done wondering. It. I was wondering if you guys had it because that's almost 2020. So I was wondering if you guys had even done it yet. So oh, well, yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, that record came out in April of 2020, and when it came out, we were thrilled because our plan was let's go on the road and play the album, and we were thinking, you know, I mean. A big part of that record is um, are the horns of the, the sax and trumpet of a player named Marcus Tenney from a band called Butcher Brown. He added so much to it. We were thinking, let's, let's take Marcus on the road. Let's take a seven or eight piece band. Let's go on the road and play this record. Lose a lot of money. You know, make just, just make have it be a disaster financially. But we present this record, and then we never got to do it because because obvious obvious reasons. Um, I would still love to do it someday. And we kind of agreed we don't want to play this record unless we do it right. So, you know, in my mind, it's just, you know, you can't will this thing into happening. These things, this kind of thing happens, you know, unintentionally. But I see this as a record that 20 years from now, some, you know, some label like Numero Group discovers and puts out and we're all 90 years old. And they say, would you go ahead and play, would you go ahead and play this record? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of record. It's all or nothing with, this, with that record. So are you going to do nothing from it when you guys tour this fall then? Yes, yeah, so prob- probably not. Unless things change between now and then, because we've tried, we've actually tried and thought about it and doing it without, without the horns, without the extra backing vocals, without all this stuff on there. It's just not the same. I really feel like, and we, and we, and this might happen in the next year or two, even if it was just for the handful of people that would like it, we really want to go out and play shows. We do this album as a piece, just like here it is, here it is start to finish. You know, maybe we did some really good videos for the record. We did a, like an album length video. Or I say we, this great video um, 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 maker in, in Scotland, David Dalgwish, did an album, album length video for the record. You know, I'd love to show the video behind us the whole time we're playing it, make it a real experience. And, you know, and, and you know, like I say, I think that's the only way, only way we'd want to do that record. So did you record that jam session and then go back and finish these times after that, the second album? Well, we recorded the jam session, like I say, in, in late at night, woke up the next morning, listened to it, said, well, that was good. And then forgot all about it. So yeah, then we finished, then we finished these times. I mean, or at that, I think there were various times when we kept making, as we moved along with the record that we were thinking, well, some of that jam session could be used on this record we're making right now. I mean, we could do, you know, turn that into a song and they just didn't just, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it's, maybe we didn't have time to do that. Maybe there wasn't that kind of record, whatever it was. We just forgot about it. Did that help unlock anything on that album? Like did the making of these times change for some reason, because you'd done this other liberating thing in the middle of the night? Definitely. It was good. It was a good experience doing, doing that in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, I mean, okay, just, you know, relax <laughs> Don't worry. stop stop making sense stop stop worrying so much about what we're doing and just and just be let things happen where they're meant to happen don't try to um make this record something that's not and and in reality you know i think that these times when it came out was uh, as would often be the case i mean how did i find myself here got such a great response and so much press and was seen as this kind of you know wonderful comeback from a band that had been away for 24 years and how often does that happen that by the time these times came out shortly after 
it just it, it didn't get the same attention. In retrospect, I like it more. I really like that record a lot. And I think it's just a record that has such a vibe to it. And I think we did a good job with it. But I think it was, you know, it, it, it was a harder record to make. But yeah, the jam really freed things up. It's what we do best. Yeah, and, you know, when we come, when we come to play the show in Chicago and we go on the tour that we have coming up, we still wrestle with that every night. We still, you know, I still, before the show, make a set list and I want to get all the songs and I want to play all the, all the, all the songs, short songs. I want to play Tell Me When It's Over. I want to play, you know, you know, whatever. Um, when You Smile. And I want to play the newer songs like, like you, know, um, you know, whatever, Glide and all, this, all the songs that are a little shorter. But the reality is if we just went on stage and said, no set list, no songs, we'll see what happens. It probably would be really good. It's what we it's where we came from. It's how the band began in 1982. It's how we it's even when we made Medicine Show, a record that was done for AM and done with a bigger budget, still the standout song is the 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 nine minute jam. It's just kind of what for for whatever reason, and I have I think the reason, to be honest, largely, is we've always had a really good rhythm section. And I think I think in more than people think, as much as they might talk about the guitars, Dennis Duck is the key to the Dream Syndicate. The way he plays drums, the way, and he's coming, you mentioned Can earlier. Dennis's main roots are things like Can and Noy and Faust and, 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 and you know, and the German rock scene, as well as a lot of free jazz and, and experimental music. That's where he's coming from. And he is, unlike a lot of drummers and unlike a lot of musicians, happy just to play the same thing for an hour he just he's he's that's his happy place and i think that's kind of what the band's all about and it, it's maybe because i'm a songwriter i often will say okay but i just wrote the best four minute song and it can work you know tell me when it's over no flies on that song but but it's, it's kind of sometimes the less maybe it's true for a lot of you the less we do the better the less we intend to do the better this whole solo career between you know the first phase of the dream syndicate and then the more recent phase of the dream syndicate were you just writing in a different mode in in that way and did you sort of is one of the reasons you wanted to get dream syndicate back together because you wanted to i mean obviously there was there was some overlap between like the miracle three and dream syndicate i you know you had jason victor playing guitar and and some of that guitar interplay certainly present in those records as well but was there a shift in the way you sort of approached songwriting because you were going from the steve Wynn or steve Wynn and the miracle three records to back to the dream syndicate yeah Definitely. And, and, and like I said earlier, but the, those first records, everything on um, on um, How Did I Find Myself Here, the record we made in 2016, um, those were all written for the Dream Syndicate. There were no, oh, I've got these songs held over my solo records. Right. It was kind of meant to be written for that record uh, and for that band, you know, for the band with Jason. That's why it, I guess it made sense. But I, I, yeah, it's funny. We know. I, the thing I just said about the dream syndicate, that the thing that thing we work best, we plan as little as possible. It's not the way it is my soul, those solo records I made were all song records. I mean, there was some, there were some longer songs. There were some kind of wild songs, but they were songs just, you know, written to be played with, you know, hooks and choruses and nice overdubs and stuff like that. And I like that. Maybe it's this way. I know. I think of people like Elvis Costello, I think it's one of his, his failings 
is that he wants to do everything. He's obviously a very knowledgeable, has a great knowledge of music history, and he probably wants to use it and show it at all times. I'm assuming, I'm assuming this, but I can talk from the records. And and that's not a bad thing. Loving music, loving many kinds of music is great. I'm often, often envious of people who do one thing and do that one thing over and over and over because that's a tough discipline. Um, you know, I mean, I like... Um, I like Bill Callahan a lot. I like what he does. And he's always Bill Callahan. He does this kind of, that, that sort of sound, the way his way of writing, his way of singing. And it's a certain kind of thing. Often for me, and it's, I guess it helps that I have so many different projects, I want to, you know, I want to be the entire record collection at one time, you know, and, and I want, I get excited about one thing one day, you know, this morning, um, your previous guest, Linda Pittman, and I, my wife and I, were listening to Procol Harum, A Salty Dog. It's like, oh, man, I want to write A Salty Dog tomorrow. I want to, I want a record like that. And I love again, that record. It's a great record. Such a good yeah. record. And it's like, you know, that comes from a real love of music, excitement, you know, but I, I don't, I could be wrong, but I think a lot of musicians don't think that way. I think a lot of musicians say, this is what I do. I'm going to do it over and over again until I drop, you know, and that's, you know, that's, that's admirable. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great skill to have. Wanting to do everything at once is not always a good thing. Fortunately, over time, I've kind of learned to focus and try to do a certain kind of thing, at least for the duration of a record. And you know, if I want to do something else, do it the next record. Well, it's interesting because the end of that first phase of the Dream Syndicate, you had ghost stories, and it's kind of your transition into the singer-songwriter part of your career. And then you have this whole singer-songwriter part, and then you're like, yeah, I'm ready to I'm ready to do more, right? You know, do more band interplay again and less of just sort of the four-minute, three-minute songs. Although at the same time, then you also have the baseball project where you're writing these perfect, you know, three minute songs with catchy lyrics about, I mean, catchy uh, melodies and sort of punchy lyrics about something that you love, which is baseball. And that's sort of exercising different muscles, I imagine, than what you're doing in the Dream Syndicate. Definitely. I mean, and those are very different things. Yeah. The, I mean, I think Ghost Stories was, in a way, my first solo record. And I'm not, I don't say that to, to diminish what the other band members did, but that was the record where I... I'd already been playing solo shows. I'd already been writing songs, not with, with, with doing a solo record, but with kind of just being a, song, a singer songwriter of mine. And that could have easily been a solo record. I just got, I got really at the time, very eager to um, do songs, record songs. It's funny that time I was just talking to somebody about this, that period of time, like the late eighties, um, 87, 88, 89, so many of the people who had been band leaders of, of underground rock bands, um, Paul Westerberg, um, Bob Mould, um, Peter Case, Stan Ridgeway, um, that's four off the top of my head, and a lot of others too, who had been in kind of what you consider to be, you know, indie rock, underground, right, bands, all suddenly, almost overnight, became singer-songwriters. We all, it's almost like we had a, a meeting, a meeting of the indie rock circuit and said, now we're singer-songwriters, now we're, you know, now we're going to be Bob Dylan or Neil Young, whatever, whatever it was, but every, every one of those people just name, we all made these kind of solo records in the same year, 1990. Well, it was strange where Paul Westbrook was suddenly writing his, his, his folk songs. And Bob Mould, even though it was still rocking, was very song-oriented, not punk rock. It's kind of, and I think the reason was we'd all been banging our heads against the indie rock wall for seven, eight years, and not, not even just like, oh, it's time to have a hit or it's time for success. It was kind of like, I've done that so much, there must be something else I can do. You know, I, I, I need a change. And the change for all of us, for me, for sure, was songs and playing with other people and different textures and bringing other elements into the music. And that was exciting. And for about 
three or four years is what I did. As time went on, I realized I was very hungry to play in a band. And I think that I'm a pretty good band leader. I'm pretty good at putting bands together. I'm pretty good at, you know, at arranging things and all that. But what I like most is just is interplay and responding to what's happening around me, to being in an exciting band and hearing everything in real time and doing what I do based on what I hear around me. It's like a jazz type thing or whatever. And I missed, I missed that at the time. And that's why I missed, and I missed that with the dream syndicate and that's kind of why the, the band reformed. And even in the baseball project, which is like you say, more of a short song, functional specific sub subject matter kind of band. It's so inspiring playing with people like Scott and Linda and Peter and Mike, who all bring a lot of ideas, you know, nobody has to dictate anything. Everybody just, just flows off what's happening. Yeah, no, I mean, Baseball Project is a superstar band, like being on stage and playing with them. I mean, you got you got Linda Pittman, who is a fantastic drummer. And, yeah, that's uh, for sure. you know, you, you, got, you, have, you have half of REM there with actually three-fifths, if you want to count. I mean, yeah. You got Scott McCoy, uh, you, you have Peter Buck, you have Mike Mills. And it's not like their bands were known for being jammy bands anyway, but it's like that is a really hot band to be playing songs about songs about baseball with it's a really hot band it's it's you know it's and it's funny because you know we we hadn't played that much as a five piece um until well i'm gonna say recently but we, you know we, we began as a four piece with peter and then when peter couldn't do it for a while mike stepped in and um but that band playing the five of us together is so exciting and we just finished a new record we, we made a record um last last may um, with mitch easter producing at his studio in north carolina which was exciting too you know because that's a guy who's a hero for all of us you know we yeah you know, even, even grizzled vets like we are he's like you know the the generation before and we you know loved him then and we love him now and it was six people working together and did this really exciting thing and we were all just kind of swept away by the whole thing i think that we, it was it was a very unselfconscious session where we just went with the excitement what was happening I'm really into the, I'm excited about the record. I don't, I don't know when it's going to come out, but I just can't wait for it to come out because it really does more than the other records we made. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like everybody's strengths all firing on all cylinders at all times. You know, it's like Peter is writing incredible riffs and just playing, you know, you know, the great arpeggio stuff and Mike's bass playing and singing is fantastic. It just, you know, it's, it's, everyone full on doing what they do really well. Has it become more, is there more band interplay now than there was when you guys started it, would you say? Yeah, it was definitely more interplay now. I think the five of us play like a band. You know, I remember, you know, at some point early on, but you have to bear in mind, I mean, that, that four of the five members are baseball fanatics. Linda and Scott and Mike and myself, we all are very into the game. No, no doubt about it. Peter is less of a baseball fan and Peter his appreciation of baseball mainly comes one because he knows how much we like it and kind of gets excited about us being excited about it. And also Peter being very into literature and reading and being a bookworm enjoys reading about baseball and the history and the characters and all of that. So he has a brief, but he's less of a geeky fan. And he often would say, God is such a good band. We should sometime write about something besides baseball. <laughs> and that's what we do. And this new record that we've made really just feels like a great rock and roll record that happens to have this subject matter stirring about in the background, you know, but it's, it's really just a band playing well together. I was wondering whether you guys ever end up, you know, coming up with some non-baseball songs and you're like, uh Oh, we have like this other second, you know, non-baseball project band thing going on here as well. I wouldn't mind it. I think, I think it'd be a lot of fun. It might happen someday. I've often thought that my next solo record could be that band. And I would be a uh, luckiest guy on the planet to have a band that great. 
doing a solo record. So yeah, it could happen. It's funny because, you know, we, of course, we've all known each other forever. That's a, a crazy thing with that band. We've, you know, God, think about how far Mike and Peter go back with REM. That's 40 years. And Linda and I have been playing together for 25 years. And I've been playing, you know, now with, with, with those guys for so long. And Scott been playing with those guys. It's just a long history there. And we get together and play. It's a great feeling. There's no... There's a, you know, I'm kind of lucky at this point. And I, you know, I, I do wonder often if I will do a project or record again with people that I don't know that well, which can be exciting. But at this point in my life, I'm playing with my best friends. I'm playing with people I've known for a long time. I'm playing with people that I don't have to explain things. There's this, this there's an instant secret language that this happens when we play together. And one thing I love about the new baseball project record is you have three guitarists, me and Scott and Peter. And half the time, I don't know who's playing what. I wasn't like, I think that's me, but that could be Scott. It could be Peter. I don't know. And it's because we can read each other's minds so well. We just know what to do. That's a, that that's exciting. There's no substitute for that. And it's a comfort zone. And um, and I say that hesitatingly because as I say that, I realize I'm so inspired half the time from, or a lot of the time, from playing with new people and being surprised. But God, at this point in my life, it's nice being that comfortable. It's nice putting on the old, com- it's, you know, it's the, the equivalent of Mr. Rogers putting on the sweater and the shoes when he walks in the house, you know, and we step in the studio and just, ah, this feels, this feels good. I know you've done other projects where there are other songwriters, like you had your Danny and Dusty project, but this is one where you and Scott are, you know, you, you guys write the bulk of the songs and then Mike comes in occasionally with one. Um, but like, how much do you sort of feed off having another songwriter in the band? I've really never had that. I mean, you mentioned like Danny and Dusty and that was a, but that was such a short-lived thing. I mean, that was great and fun, but it's not like we were ever a real functioning band. This is like the first time, first time I've been in a band where I could spend half the show just standing back on stage playing guitar and watching somebody else sing, which is great. I mean, Scott is such a fantastic songwriter, so prolific, and has writes such great lyrics and has such a, a warped sense of how he looks at the world and writes about it. And I enjoy just being a fan of his for half the show on stage. It's, it's really good. Also, I think... Um, with the baseball project, it's circling back to what we talked about earlier. It's kind of half a band and half a newsroom because we we, we talk about how we're going to write songs. It's like, what are our stories today? Well, I got a song this time about you know um, about Vince Scully, another song about um, Jackie Robinson, and a song now about about curveballs, you know, and things like that. Great. Okay, what's your angle? Well, I'm going to interview this guy and that guy, and I got the story. And that's kind of Scott and I write in tandem that way as a two journalists trying to come up with the, the, the new edition of the newspaper. And that's a, it's a whole different way of doing things. We talk, we talk about a lot of the songs we have that we're working on with each other before we make a record. And we really don't, we don't always talk about, yeah, this new song I have is kind of like the small face. And this new song I have is kind of like, you know, um, um, the doors. No, we say this new song's about, you know, about the screwball and how nobody throws it anymore. Great. Great. Um, write it up. We'll have it in the morning edition. There's a human subject, a human angle to every story. And in the baseball project, we try to find that human angle. You know, Harvey Haddix, I really thought about what was it like to be him that night? How did I wonder how he slept that night? How could he? What was it like to be Harvey Haddix that night after throwing 12 perfect innings and losing the perfect game and the game itself? What was it like? What, 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 how did he feel? I found out, by the way, because um, Harvey's widow, Marsha Haddix, heard the record and loved the song and said, well, actually, I know what happened. He walked around um, uh, Milwaukee all night long 
just unable to believe what had just happened. He couldn't sleep. He just walked the streets like, great. Wow. Now we know, you know, and that's, that's <laughs> the kind of thing, you know, it's, it's, and that's, I, I think that's, you know, it's a fun thing about the baseball project is you, is, is like you said, you have a real starting off point, but that's not enough. It's just finding the angle. And a lot of times songwriting doesn't evolve the angle. You know, if, if you said, I can write a song about how um, my heart was broken. Well, what's the angle? Oh, thanks. The angle might be that my heart was broken because um, the person I loved left to go to um, grad school. Okay, that's kind of an okay angle. That's not that great. But, you know, you, you try to find the detail, the small little detail in the song that makes it special. The whole angle of Ted fucking Williams is Ted Williams being frustrated that he doesn't get the love and respect that Mickey Mantle does or that the Duke Snyder or Willie Mays does. I often wish there was a way to write about politics in songwriting. And it's so and it hasn't been done much. You know, it, it really would be a very interesting songwriting subject, but it's tricky because, well, especially these times, things are so polarized and so right. little room for nuance. And songwriting is all about nuance. So if you wrote something about stolen documents in Mar-a-Lago, if you don't say what you're trying to say in a certain way, you're going to get a lot of people mad. And that's not songwriting. It's like, you know, look at, you know, Bruce Springsteen humanizing, you know, Starkweather, you know, on Nebraska. It's like, you can't do that. It's like crazy. You know, Neil Young writing about Charles Manson, for God's sake, you know, on Revolution Blues. I mean, these are things that just really should not happen. But that's songwriting. That songwriting is a fine you know, to find that type of thing. John Lennon tried that on sometime in New York city and it's his worst album. Like he was trying to sort of, I mean, and the cover of that album is like a mock sort of New York times cover. And he was trying to sort of react to the news of the day. And it's kind of these songs that don't really hold up and they're kind of preachy. And I mean, obviously mm. there are better ways to do it than how he did it. And, and, you know, John Lennon's John Lennon, he's fantastic, but that is, mm. it's, it's the album of his that I'm least likely to listen to. And I don't know if that's the reason or not, but uh, it didn't quite work, but he was attempting it. Yeah, he was. And I can't think of any cases where somebody made that work. I mean, I'm sure if we both brainstorm right now, we can probably think of some, you know, and I mean, Bob Dylan did it really well. He's kind of, you know, the, the, the way he wrote about Hollis Brown, you know, like the Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. These were actually... Right. For, for Dead in Ohio, Neil Young. I appreciate how fast they wrote that. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's a very raw emotions. That's great. I don't know if it really... Well, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to double back on that. It is, it is a great song. It really, it really does translate the the shock, you know, I think the line, what if you knew her and found her dead on the ground is a great line. Cause like, wow, what if, you know, what would that be like? You know, how, how horrible would that be? And that's a great way of writing about something from the new, from, from the, from the headlines. I don't know. It's, it's, this would be a great band and it would not work no matter how well you did. <laughs> I got a page one story buried in my yard. Got a troubled mind. Going Medicine Show, that's your second Dream Syndicate album. You've signed to AM. It's the big major label debut. You're working with Sandy Perlman, uh, the producer uh, who'd done Blue Oyster Cult and The Clash at that point. How did that go for you? Like it was a much longer production process. How was that experience? Well, it wasn't much fun. It was very, it's the most miserable I've ever been making a record, at least for the first few months. It took us five months to make that record. And that's a long time. It took us three days to make the Days of Wine and Roses. And 
you know, I don't think any of us realized or had the intention that we'd be making um, a record that took that long. And as it turns out, it's the way Sandy Perlman worked. I found, found out later on from talking to members of the Oyster Cult and the Dictators and reading interviews with Mick Jones and Joe Strummer, that's just what Sandy did. He, he wanted to explore every possibility and then scrap everything he learned from exploring, from exploring every possibility, then explore it all over again. And it was hard to, to work that way. And in, I think going into that record, I, my feeling was making a, a second album and making it for a major label meant we could go further on a limb and make a really dark, scary, weird, maybe even off-putting record about very difficult subjects. Carl Prakota, my counterpart in band, felt this was a chance to hit the big time. And both reactions were fair reactions to say, oh my God, we've, we've, we've hit the jackpot. You know, count, our, count our blessings. We're on a major label with a big budget. Let's have a hit. And the other guy's saying, we're on a major label. Let's ruffle as many feathers as possible. Those two things didn't go well together. The funny thing is, I love the record. And the reaction to the record was at the end of the day, really, really great. Um, in Europe, it was seen as our best record. It was the, 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 the English press said one of the best albums ever made. In the States, there was a little bit of a backlash, but over time, it's become a popular record. It was no fun to make until four months into making the record, I stopped trying to be the dream syndicate, stopped trying to retain who we were, and just started to look at it as a record, a self-contained record of its own. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, you know, it has nothing to do with Days of Wine and Roses. It has nothing to do with the Paisley Underground. It just is this monolithic, big sounding, big record that's unlike any other record that I ever made or unlike most records I've ever heard. And then it became fun. Then it became fun just to go with it. And it was, it was a lesson in sometimes you can't impose your own history and your own way of doing things on a project let it go where it wants to go. And then it worked. Is that the biggest imprint that a producer has had on any of your albums? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I really have not really done a record that wasn't self-produced in since then, really, you know, we worked with Elliot Mazur, who was another legendary producer, a couple of records later and Elliot had very strong ideas, but then point on, yeah, we were just being who we were and taking in advice. Look, in fact, Mitch Easter, the record I just made with the baseball project, probably as produced as I've been in years, Mitch really had a strong impact on the record. And we all love and trust Mitch. So there was no resistance. We, we, we were happy to hear what he had to say about stuff. But yeah, what Sandy did with that record, you know, it's funny and, and it hasn't been written about that much, but about a, a month or six weeks into making Medicine Show, you know, um, A&M, our, our label, had some idea that we might be going over budget and we might be like, you know, um, kind of in, you know, in, in, in Guyana with Jim Jones, you know, off, off being brainwashed by a guru somewhere. And they flew me down to Los Angeles. We, we made, we made that record in San Francisco. So 400 miles from where we were, all were from in LA, they flew me down to meet with them. They said, look, we have other people. If you want to get rid of Sandy and start over, we have the money and we'll do it. And they brought in Chuck Plotkin, who, had um, engineered Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen had done a lot of other records at the time. Said, if you want to Chuck Plotkin, we'll bring him in. And I felt like, no, we're, you know, we're already working with Sandy. 
It feels pretty good. Um, I like he's an odd bird, but I think we'll be done. We'll have this thing wrapped up really soon, which ended up being four months later. Is a cult like thing to Sandy. He just has a way of working. His hero at the time probably was was Francis Ford Coppola of making Apocalypse Now. That was his 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 idea of how things should be. He saw the process <laughs> the process that went into making that as the way things should be. You should exhaust all possibilities and then exhaust some more, and then you really have something. If you should break down break down your 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 way of doing things, your resistance. And then you get to the good stuff. That's just kind of the way he was. Really, I, the way it was when he made Give Him Enough, Give Him Enough Rope, the way he was when he made all the things he did. And he did that with us. And it was not fun. And it was just a Stockholm Syndrome type of thing. It just, it, as, I said, as I said before, it wasn't until we finally just said, fine, we're going to go with this process and see where it leads that it became exciting. It's about as far removed from punk rock as you can get in terms of approach. About as far as removed from punk rock as you can get. And yet he did give him enough rope. He did the second class record. So yeah, right. so, so it's a kind of funny how he found himself in that situation. But in a way, it is kind of punk rock because it really is like, you know, no future, no past, just this moment. It just is what, what it is. He, he um, Sandy's project studio he worked in was called Time Enough and World Enough. That was his 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 um, production company, which says a lot. He was all about time enough and world enough. There's no, I don't want to bend myself to any preconceived notions. I want to do things the way I want to do it, and I want to enter the world of Sandy. Had I known that going going into it, I'm sure we we wouldn't have hired him because we didn't want time enough and world enough. We wanted to make a record and get on with it. But it was a unique thing. And when you ask, have I ever had a relationship like a producer like that again? No. Would I ever want to? Probably not. But I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I experienced that. I'm glad that record came out of it. And the songs that are on that record are the ones you came in for that record? Yeah. They were all written for that record. And they were and, and I think Sandy heard songs like the ones on that record that were, you know, when I was writing for that record, there are songs like um Burn and Merrickville Medicine Medicine Show, which are all very American Gothic influenced by Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner, more rootsy, more American style of songwriting than we had done in the past, that we'd done in the previous year. And I think he saw that and made a record that fit that. You know, I didn't, I don't think it was even a conscious thing. Like we were, you know, as, as always, I was responding with songs to what I was seeing around me, to what I was reading, to being on the road in America. We'd been touring a lot and suddenly my America became bigger than Los Angeles and San Francisco and Davis, California. It was Highway 10 across Arizona, New Mexico. Right. And, and you know, it, it, I saw the country for the first time and I kind of dug it. And that record was, react, was a reaction to my America getting bigger and more, more varied. Uh, and it's a bigger sounding record for sure. And because Sandy responded to that with a bigger sounding record. And it was, a, it was very real to what we were experiencing. It just was a hard growth. I often say, you know, I, I don't regret a lot of things. I wish we would have made three records between Days of Wine and Roses and Medicine Show because they would have shown how we got from point A to point B. But instead, they're all it's all there in our live shows and, and bad bootleg tapes. And it made sense. But those two records come next to each other, very jarringly different. And I know that. And it was it kind of in a way, you know, I often wonder what, what it might have been like if we just would have in a way, do, for example, what R.E.M. did and kind of say that worked, let's do it again. 
because it worked and we do it well. And they made Reckoning to their murmur, which was a very smart thing to do. And very real, because Reckoning is a great album and who they were. And they, it wasn't, I don't know how calculated that was, but that was, you know, that helped them get where they got. We said, whatever you thought of us, we're not that anymore. Right. And, that, and that was punk rock. That was a, that was a, you know, that was, that was a, a crazy thing to do, probably insane. But in a way, that set the tone for everything I did for the next 40 years. It's kind of like that, you know, you're not going to get the same thing two times in a row. The typical second album is the, you know, repeat what you did the first time. Um, and uh, you guys definitely did not do that. No, it did not. But it, 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 it served us pretty well. You know, you know, the 40 year anniversary of medicine shows coming up in a couple of years. And I'm pretty excited to go out and play that record live, which I haven't done that much to go out and play that as as a record, because I think much like we were saying earlier about the universal side, it is a freestanding record that does a certain thing that I didn't do before since it'd be cool to revisit yeah. what that was all about. That would be cool. Yeah. You've talked about this a little bit, but uh, I remember having, you know, when I, when I was hearing the bangles and I heard hero takes a fall, I heard, Oh, that's inspired by Steve Wynn. <laughs> and I've seen you kind of joke about it on stage. So what's the story behind hero takes a fall? Well, the story for me is, as um, we were on tour with REM on the medicine, a medicine show tour and a big old tour bus might have had this might have actually happened in Chicago for all I know. But we um, I remember being on the bus one morning and Mark Walton, a bass player, pretty good, who was and is good friends with um, the Bengals camp, getting on the bus and saying, you know, that song the Bengals have that's on the charts right now. It's about you. <laughs> oh, what? Really? So unlike you, what you're saying, I didn't have an inkling that could be about me. When you told me that, it blew my mind. Like, wow. I had, like, I had several reactions at once. One is that, well, that's flattering. That's a song on the, on the top 40 is about me. And the second was, wow, that's a really mean song. How dare they? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, for one thing, since then, um, Vicky and the rest of the Bengals swear up and down. It's a composite written about many things, and I'm just a part of it. But at the time... I was hearing otherwise. It's a good song. I like it a lot. And and like a lot of people, when you're young and hit upside the head with a little bit of success, I, I was a handful for a little bit there. I was a little bit of a, you know, had an attitude and was an egotist and combined very quick success with a lot of alcohol, with um, a lot of other things. Yeah, maybe I, you know, upset a few people. Fortunately, that's well, a very short lived thing. Well, no, I mean, obviously you have a good sense of humor about it because you covered the song on that record that came out a few years yeah. ago where it was like the, the Paisley Underground bands, you know, covering each other's songs. And you did that one. And I've seen a YouTube of you introducing that song by saying, well, this song's allegedly about me. So so obviously you've come to terms with it. But I was just, you know, wondering what you did to them. <laughs> you know, at the time, there were there were several things. I mean, we it's, it's weird because when we talked earlier about how the bands got along, we all really got along well. And it wasn't. I've been reassured that, you know, by people from back then that I wasn't quite as bad as I might have made myself out to be, or that song made me out to be. But for a little while there, yeah, again, you know, maybe a touch arrogant, maybe a touch drunk more than I would like to have been, things like that. Um, and, but also things like, um, well, we had, I, I'm always unsure how candid to be about things, but, you know, we're all we've been around for a long time, but we had a tour manager who was a friend of ours who we sort of unceremoniously fired um, after working with us for a long time. And, it, and the tour manager was close to the, a, a person who was very close to them. 
And they took offense to that. And we were, as you often are when you're young, we handled what we viewed as the need to no longer work with this person as a very logical thing to say, to, to approach it like a grown up and say, look, I feel bad, but I think we should both, you know, we see other people, we shouldn't work together anymore. We did it in a very cowardly way, maybe. I'm going to be kind of going to beg about this. And the Bengals took offense to that. And that started, they, they thought that wasn't a good way to be. But you do dumb things when you're young. And, and, and right. I certainly didn't. We did. And so all these things were forgotten about six months later. And I think even, you know, it was never that bad. And my instant reaction to hearing that song was about me was to write my own answer song, which was a song called um, Baby, We All Gotta Go Down, which Danny and Dusty recorded on our first record, which th that song says... You know, not how dare you say that about me or I'm so hurt. This says rather, you know what? Yeah, the hero's going to take a fall and we'll all have our moments and everybody's going to get their come up. It's, and, you know, and no one's going to escape that. Over a course of time, everybody's going to have their ups and downs and we're all going to, you know, we're, we're all going to get ours in a manner of speaking and we're all going to come back from it. And it's kind of the truth. People, that's what life is all about. You have ups and downs. You do things you wish you didn't do. And hopefully you learn from it and, and bounce back and, that's that. I think it's also sort of the nature of songwriting where you get irritated by the people who are closest to you in your life, whether it's your best friend or, you know, people in your family. And you have these moments where you just think something and a phrase comes to mind and that can spark a song and you're sort of capturing the moment, the, the emotion from that second and you get a song out of it and it doesn't mean it's a documentary it means it's like a snapshot of a particular moment that you have and that's where songs come from and and in a way it's a sort of a it's an example of sort of like where where songwriting inspiration is it's like it's why people who are happily married still write brutal you know love songs because everyone goes through a range of emotions and you know you can't just sort of uh, you know, say, well, this is a documentary about what someone's life is like every moment of the day. It's like, no, that was just like a flash. And that's what a song is. Right. And being fearless enough to follow that flash and lay it all out and not worry about the repercussions is that's good songwriting. You know, that's, that's incredible. Um, I mean, positively fourth street, who was that song about, you know, what, 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 right. what person earned that wrath, you know, and that's great that he, he didn't, he didn't give a shit. He just wrote that song and said, you know, I don't care who thinks this is about them or who might get upset. That's great. That's a hard thing to do. I'm not, I'm not always that good at it. I haven't always been that good at writing the song that is pointed and mean spirited. That's, you know, and, and, and that's a tough, tough one to walk, you know, that that's, and especially like you say, people in great relationships, you know, I couldn't be more blessed. I'm in a wonderful marriage to your, your previous guests, you know, and, 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 but like any couple, we're going to have moments that are, you know, a little bit that have some tension. Am I going to write about that tension and lay it all out there? Probably not. It's not what I do. Some people can do that really well. I mean, well, you know, let's go back to shoot out the lights. My God, he was, you know, you know, he was just laying it all out there. And yeah, although Richard Thompson you know. denies that that was actually a snapshot of their marriage and he was just writing characters and and all okay. that stuff. But, <laughs> but, you, but, you, but you, yeah, but then you look at what was actually happening at the time and uh, it certainly seems like a portrait of a marriage falling apart i'm thinking that record i'm thinking also tunnel of love by springsteen right absolutely and what, ha and what happened to both those marriages you know that that that's um the, but that that's a th these are very real things writing it i mean writing it when you write a song that somebody can hear and say you read my mind you i felt that way before my god how you just you just 
said everything I've been feeling. That's a great feeling. That's a that's great songwriting, and that's a that's a, that's a it is a type of songwriting um, that some people do really well. You know, that's not necessarily what I do always or do that well, but some people can do that so well. Yeah, that's like there's sort of you know your autobiographical writing and. I don't know, maybe for lack of a better word, your journalistic writing or, or, you know, like the writing where you're sort of thinking of stories, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily you who's personally had gone through this. It's not a therapeutic thing for you to get this off your chest. You're just sort of singing a song about something that you have in mind. Has that shifted for you over time? Like, like maybe earlier on, you were more autobiographical and less so now or any other sort of dynamic that's changed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in fact, it's, it, you know, the idea that I write about characters and stories, I don't that much with the dream syndicate for example to be honest i mean the dream syndicate songs really are very these days the 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 new era of dream syndicate are very personal and often i'm writing about things very close to my heart and in fact this is a weird thing to say but but a lot of the dream syndicate songs especially on uh, the first record we made after the long break were about the dream syndicate were about being in that place which is strange you know, but it was it was very close to me at the time. You know, I guess when I say I don't write that much about love and romance and affairs of the heart, I just never I a little bit here and there. But I do write about, I think, emotional and mental state. And a lot of my my writing, in, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, are very emotional songs about reaching some kind of a I don't know. An impasse, something that, is, that just seems very difficult and there's no way out of. And how do you deal with that feeling? And it could be just frustration, depression, um, um, you know, um, paralysis, whatever. So I, I'm, if I look at the songs on how did I find myself here, for example, the first song is um, called Filter Me Through You, that's the first song. And that song is literally about the way you leave your mark behind. That could be in, in, a, in a relationship. If you, if you break up with somebody, you still leave some sense of the impact you had on that person stays with that person forever, how they approach the next relationship, um, um, how they promise never to be again, the things they'll miss and want to recreate. And it also can happen with a band. Bands disappear like the Dream Syndicate did, and you leave your DNA behind with other bands. And that song was about that. That song was, you know, is it was the feeling of who we were, what we left behind for other bands to take. Um, Glide, the second song, I mean, I'm not going to go for every single song, but Glide, the second song, was about that moment in your life when you realize you may not ever reach the dream heights you'd have, for your, the, the, the dream of being the biggest or the best or the, or the richest or the smartest or the greatest of anything, but you're going to reach a point that is, feels good for you and that you know works for you, and then enjoying that and, and enjoying the little victories that come with that. That was all about a point that, that I reached in my life. So the, the, how did I find myself here? The title track is about looking at just literally that, like how in the world did this happen? How did, how did I find myself in a band that was dead for 25 years and now we're in a studio together again, writing songs and trying to make sense of who we were and how we've grown. So, I mean, you know, even the song Kendra Smith wrote for that record, Kendra's Dream, which I'm not sure what she's going on about, but I think she's writing about how reality becomes myth and how myth becomes what endures in perception of something that happened. These are all things that were very real to us and, and very emotional. And people, I think, picked up on that. That's why that record was connected with people. Because it wasn't, awesome. it was, yeah, yeah it, was, it wasn't about, you know, 
and God bless the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger still can write a song about how horny he is, and that's great. You know, God bless, <laughs> God bless him, and he probably is. But, you know, but but we were writing songs about real things that you would feel at let's see, how old? Um, fifty-seven when I made that record. Things that we would feel at fifty-seven. I'm still, you know, I've got this history that's dogging me. I've got this future that's making me anxious and curious. And how do I reconcile the two? And that's been a subject matter that's very big in. The dream syndicate mock too right and the music and the music is growing organically out of that and like then you have the whole music where you've sort of you're you're setting it up where you have you know your grooves and your interplay and everything else and it all works together in this way that's the dream syndicate but also is new um you know just this different phase yeah definitely yeah true i mean i think that you know again being being a you know a fan and student of music you know as well as one of makes it I'm always impressed by people in music who can really just figure out who they are and what they do well and do that. Um, the same way when you watch an actor and you say certain actors are, are great at finding that universal truth in themselves that reflects on others. I think in music, if you, when you kind of hit that groove where you just, this is who I am and what I do, that's great. Not easy. God, not easy for me. Not easy for people who, again, want to be everything you know, again, I mentioned Elvis Costello, David Bowie, Neil Young, you know, people who dare to change from record to record, dared, who dare to take extreme left turns. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you, um, but the best things are when you make music that just is who you are. And I think, I think this era of the dreams to get more, even more than the first time around, we've figured out how to be who we are and sing about who we are and perform in a way that reflects who we are, which is been kind of a really gratifying thing about the second go round. Right. Yeah, no, most bands don't don't have that second act that's so, you know, this is so cool and and valid in its own way and and you know, it's not like you're it's it's not a backward looking phase you're in. It's 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 forward motion um, you know, while building on what you guys have done, but it doesn't feel like you're, you know, revisiting it. Yeah, I I have to say, you know, I think we've done the comeback thing about as well as anybody ever has. You know, I think that um, it's it's hard for a band to reunite, and and a lot of bands have done it well as a live band. You know, um, a lot of bands reunite and play live, and my God, you're more powerful than ever. But going coming back and making a bunch of records that somehow are true to the of what the band represented, but also true to where you are now, and not being so slavishly copying an earlier time, but not being so different, it doesn't make sense to it reformed in the first place. I don't know. I think we've done it pretty well. I, I, I got to say it. I agree. Uh, yeah. And I love the fact I don't see us ever breaking up because even if we don't, even if we didn't make a record for the next five years, we'll still be a band. But I do love the fact we've now made four albums, just like we did the first time around. And I'm kind of a sucker for symmetry. And it's like, well, we had two parallel lives and we could stop now and say, all right, you know, choose one, choose the other, choose them both. But they're, we did it again. We learned from mistakes. We had a second chance, and um, we we had a, a a good second life. When I'm talking about trajectory of a career or life, it's hard because, well, two things. I mean, it's a difficult subject because it's very emotional, and also um, you're never the best judge of how your life was. Songwriting and record making, I could talk about endlessly. I love, I love. 
I love the nuts and bolts of what we do. It's a total treat for me to get to talk to you um, about you know your work and uh, and and your process and the creative process. That that's always exciting to me. Just like learning about the creative process. I'm not someone who's like, oh, I don't want to demystify it. I'm like, no, that may, like learning how the Beatles made their albums just makes them even more amazing. And hearing how the thought process that went into you know your work, it just makes it come alive that much more. So, thank you so much, Sahadalin, Linda. I really appreciate you doing this and having you on here. That's it for episode 49 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Wynn for going so deep while covering so much of his music making. He is performing living room and backyard shows up and down the East Coast in early September, and you could read about them and more at stevewynn.net. That's S-T-E-V-E-W-Y-N-N.net. The Dream Syndicate then launches the fall leg of its 40th anniversary, the Days of Wine and Roses Tour, September 15th in Philadelphia, with stops in Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, St. Paul, and Chicago. Go to thedreamsyndicate.com for more information and pick up the Days of Wine and Roses while you're at it and delve further into the Dream Syndicate's first and second quartets of albums. Then there's Decade, the 11-CD retrospective that Real Gone Music released, covering Wynn's solo career from 1995 to 2005. It includes 57 previously unreleased tracks. And as baseball season reaches its climax, seek out those first three baseball project albums and keep an eye out for the fourth. Follow Steve Wynn on Twitter at Steve Wynn. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who knocks each episode out of the park. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.